Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habit of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. Is if you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have had so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. Pau Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this special edition of Sports Business Radio presented by Thusio. We recorded this edition of Sports Business Radio on January 26th using Thusio's platform that allowed for people from around the world to join us virtually for this live recording and a Q&A with Eddie George. Eddie George has joined me on Sports Business Radio before. It's been a while. Nine seasons with the NFL's Tennessee Titans. He's the Titans' all-time leading rusher, NFL Rookie of the Year in 1996. 1995 Heisman Trophy winner at Ohio State. He starred on Broadway. He's been in the HBO series Ballers with The Rock. And he's earned his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Eddie George. Before we get to that, I'm joined by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, it's Tampa Bay and Kansas City in Super Bowl 55, just as I predicted. Congrats to you. I got to give you props. We were texting on uh, Sunday after the games. Like You're like, you got to give me props in the show. And I'm like, you got it. (laughs) You picked them right. Well, and what, you know, Road Warriors, the... uh, Tampa Bay Bucks are with Tom Brady. They had to go on the road at Washington, at New Orleans, at Green Bay and win those games. And now, ironically, they become the first team in Super Bowl history to host the Super Bowl in their own backyard in Tampa. So it's a it's a home game for them. They don't have to get on an airplane and go anywhere. And I think that's an advantage for them. Oh, it totally is. I mean, traveling, you know, especially Super Bowl, because you're you're leaving a week before the actual game with all the media and all the stuff you have to do. So I think that's a big advantage. You get to sleep in your own bed for the week. Not bad. All right. Next week, Peter O'Reilly, who runs the Super Bowl and the Pepsi halftime show and the NFL draft for the NFL, he's going to join us. He joined us annually for a conversation to preview the Super Bowl. You're not going to want to miss that show. He gives us a great behind the scenes of everything that's going on. This year is going to look a lot different than past Super Bowls. 22,000 fans are going to be in attendance, but really no Super Bowl parties beforehand. Everything is going to be done virtually like Media Day. Griggs, it's going to look a lot different. Yeah, I mean, Peter's always one of our favorites every year, and this year is going to be even more exciting because the interview is going to be totally different. I mean, the whole thing's going to look different. It's going to feel different. Obviously, off of 2020, it's going to look different. So, yeah, looking forward to Peter. He's always fun. We'll also tell you about some of the biggest ads, who's in and who's out for Super Bowl ads. That's a big part of the game. And, uh, you know, we'll just make our predictions for the game and 
I think it's going to be an interesting show next week. So we'll have everything Super Bowl 55 related for you next week. But right now, enjoy this conversation with Eddie George presented by Thuzio. Really happy to be here. Uh, Sports Business Radio presented by Thuzio. Eddie George is my guest. Nine seasons with the NFL's Tennessee Titans. He's the Titans' all-time leading rusher. He's the NFL Rookie of the Year in 1996. 1995 Heisman Trophy winner at Ohio State. He starred on Broadway, played Billy Flynn in the play Chicago. He starred in one of my favorite shows on HBO, Baller, with The Rock. He actually had a fight scene with The Rock. We'll ask him about that. And he earned his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. You can find him on Twitter at EddieGeorge2727. Eddie, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing well. I I, I deeply apologize about (laughs) the snafu. I promise you I'm not 30 minutes late. (laughs) It was a problem. I, I appreciate everybody. Hopefully we're patient with everything. Uh, thank you for having me on. You know, it's it's an honor. Uh, our brother Tiki Barber, uh, who's played the NFL as well, who has maybe four yards in terms of career yards more than me. He always uh, teases that he's uh, also a Broadway star. He's a superstar. He should be. Should, he's probably already done this already. But it's always good to see my man and uh, be, be willing to share my story with you guys. So you look great. You look like you could still play. I think, A, you need to suit up so that you can get in front of Tiki on the all-time leading rush list. But you're a big yogi, aren't you? You know, I've been doing yoga uh, since 1997, and um, I still have trouble getting into a down dog. You know, my lower back, (laughs) all of that. But I've uh, I've always um, uh, enjoyed looking outside the um, regular scope of things in terms of how you typically work out with just lifting and running. Um, I was always big into um, the complete person, body, mind, and the spirit. And uh, yoga allows me to get into that. Now, I have to be completely honest with you. When I began yoga, it was for different reasons. I mean, there were some really good looking girls in there with yoga fans. (laughs) And, and my teammates used to tease me, saying, "Oh, Eddie, you know, oh, you're doing yoga. It's such a girly thing." I was like, "Hey, don't come. I'm, I'm good." With me and about 20 other women, so <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. But when they caught on, that's when they uh, started hating on my game a little bit with the ladies. So, uh, but now nah, yoga's been—I um, still practice. I still do it. Um, it helps me with uh, the daily stresses of life. Um, and, um, I think uh, a lot of other athletes have embraced, um, that as a practice. I watched LeBron last night, season Mm -hmm. 18, 46 points, almost has a triple double. Like this guy is a a human marvel. And I look at some of the athletes like him and how they keep themselves in peak physical condition. Now that allows them to play this long Tom Brady, 43 years old, going to be playing in the Super Bowl. Was it that way when you were playing, or have things gotten better where it's allowed athletes to play longer now? You know, it's funny you say that because um, I've been going to like a hyperbaric chamber, cryotherapy, uh, compression, um, all of that stuff within the, like the last week, just working on trying to stay, stay healthy and try to feel good, just getting out of bed. 
And um, that none of that stuff was around. All we had was an ice tub that you had to share with, with like two other guys. I mean, you had to schedule an appointment to get into the ice tub. It was only one. Um, but it's truly remarkable that now guys are really looking at their bodies as their, um, their craft, but also longevity for their careers to play a very long time. Um, when I first got to the league, you know, we had, I had to eat uh, differently. Um, I used to eat fast food and um, guys would smoke at halftime and drink beers at halftime. Well, now, you know, you're getting IVs and you're uh, getting your hyperbaric chambers. And, um, you're getting your adequate rest, um, plant-based diets. You know, none of that stuff was ever heard of uh, back in the early 90s and um, early 90s, 2000. And now, you know, with uh, technology and innovation and how guys are uh, recovering better and training differently, um, they're able to sustain uh, longer careers, and the rules of the game has changed for both basketball and football is not as physical. So uh, you're able to play longer, more effectively, and have more production because of that. Um, but it is it is uh, remarkable that LeBron and Tom Brady um, and a lot of athletes are having longer, successful careers at the top of their game. Yeah. All right, I want to go back to the beginning for you. You're a Philly guy. Mm-hmm. How does a Philly guy wind up at Ohio State? Why not Penn State, Pitt? You know, you have some good schools in Pennsylvania. How do you get to Ohio State? Well, I, um, I wanted to, to go to Penn State and play running back. Uh, but long story short, I wasn't a very good student in high school. Uh, my mom sent me to uh, Forky Military Academy in Virginia, uh, my 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 junior year and I went there for um, uh, two years in my high school year and a postgraduate year and I got I've done it up there obviously to get uh, attention from Ohio State and they were on the only school that promised to let me play running back or at least compete at running back uh, they might have been lying at the time but <laughs> you know it was just something about um, the, the, the tradition of players um, I, I love the locker room. Uh, I love the my, my teammates at the time. I had a good uh, feeling about them. Um, they they pushed me to really dig deep in myself to to, 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 to be my to reach my maximum potential. Um, so when I walked on the campus, I just knew it. it. It wasn't anything where they promised me a jersey number or uh, the world or a starting position. I just wanted to compete. And um, they said, hey, you know, if you, if you come, you're not going to start probably, but you have a chance to compete at running back, and that's all I wanted. Was John Cooper your coach there? Yes, he was. John Cooper, yep. And what kind of a coach was he? I mean, he had a lot of success. You guys had a lot of success there, but he seems like he would have been a, a fun coach to play for. Yeah, Cooper was, uh, was a, you know, he, he was later in his career. And he um, was, he had everything mapped out. You know, know, he was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And um, he was an awesome recruiter. um, Got a lot of talent to come to Ohio State. And, you know, we, he was, uh, and still is, a uh, a fabulous motivator. Uh, He knew how to, to motivate us and get us ready for games and, um, genuinely interested in you as a person. So he never really coached 
the player. He really coached the person. And um, it was a lot of fun playing for him. It seems like all past Ohio State athletes, whether it's football, basketball, anything, Buckeye Nation is a tight-knit group. You still keep in contact with everyone. And I saw when they played in the, in the championship against Alabama, you, you were very vocal about uh, how you thought they were going to do. Yeah, I still keep up with them. In fact, right now I'm in Florida with two of my, my former teammates, Raymond Harris and Joey Galloway playing golf and, and doing what guys do. Uh, so we're actually here right now doing that. So we, we really stick together. Uh, the guys I played with, the guys that were before me and certainly after me, we try to um, keep a, a network going and try to be bridge builders, if you will, to show them some of the pitfalls, the mistakes that we might have made, um, the successes that we've had. Uh, just a blueprint on to be successful during your playing days and certainly after your playing days because what you buy into is that once you're a Buckeye, you're a Buckeye for life. And there's a responsibility to pass that torch on to the next generation. How's your golf game there in Florida? It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Why? What do you, I mean, come on. What do you need to work on? Everything? You're like me or? What I need to work on? Uh, maybe I should just work on throwing these clubs out the door. <laughs> oh, <laughs> garbage! No, but I'm working on uh, everything: putting, chipping, um, my my swing with my my irons. Right now, I'm focusing on shallowing my club versus coming over the top like a like slamming the ball. So I'm trying to shallow it, and uh, it's it's a, a a very daunting and hard. Uh, sport to to take on later in life but I really never played golf um during my playing days it's something I picked up relatively um recent you know the last few years and you have a new appreciation for the sport have a new appreciation for Tiger Woods and all of the championships that he has won it's hard to win one let alone 15 16 or however many he's won so far so it, it is a gentleman's game it's a wonderful game um, and something that I can play hopefully until I'm about 127 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. So, all right, let's go back to 1995, uh, Heisman Trophy ceremony. You and Tommy Frazier from Nebraska are the two favorites for the Heisman, one of the closest Heisman votes ever. When you're in that room and you've got to speak in front of everyone and you see the past Heisman Trophy winners, who were you most excited to see in the room, and, and how nerve-wracking was that? It was uh, very nerve-wracking, um, but it was also a, an accomplishment to get in the room. One is an accomplishment. Yes. Make think yeah. about it. He failed to mention that Danny Werfel was also in the room, who was the next year's Heisman winner, 96, hmm. and uh, Donnell Autry from Northwestern, and Troy Davis, who rushed for uh, 2,000 yards back-to-back at Iowa State. So it was some really good football players in that room that night. And not to mention Tony Dorsett, who was uh, a great uh, running back for University of Pittsburgh. He played at Dallas so many years. And I grew up watching him, Earl Campbell, Mike Rozier, Archie Griffin, uh, Marcus Allen, Tim Brown. I mean, the list goes on and on. And this was at the Downtown Athletic Club. Uh, the old deck where they had a, a room, a banquet room, with all of the portraits, painted portraits of each Heisman winner uh, that was back that was backlit uh, on the walls, on the oak walls. 
And when you walked in the room, you got a sense like, ooh, this is, this is different. This is special. And um, so it was really an overwhelming, uh, int- intimidating environment for me, but uh, one that uh, I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Was it? Was there someone in that room that you really wanted to meet that night? You mentioned Tony Dorsett, Earl Campbell, some of these guys that came before you, Mike Rozier. Is there someone who you really wanted to say hello to that night? Well, you know, it's it's such a, a different the, the, when you're up for the Heisman and you're in the room and you're a candidate. You're not necessarily focused on meeting someone. You're in essence like, I hope I win the damn thing. <laughs> yeah. You're, it's like going on stage or you're going um, before the world and and you're not really thinking about, well, uh, who's in the room that I can meet because the pressure is there to, to, to win it and you, you're on pins and needles. There's a lot of anticipation that you have to manage. Um, so I really wasn't thinking about that. Uh, but after I won the award, I was like, well, who's in the room? I was like, you know, once I was able to breathe a little bit. How did winning the Heisman change your life? Oh, it changed my life for the better. Um, obviously, I think it's it's um, it's you're never for, for, forgotten. You're always remembered. Your your legacy is forever cemented. Um, it um, it gets better with time. Um, you really appreciate um, all the doors, the opportunities the people that you have an opportunity to meet um, in your life, your life walk as a Heisman Trophy winner. Um, you are in a, an elite group of, of men that, that share the same award as you. So it um, it's changed my life for a lot of great reasons because I can do things now and go places that people always know that I, I, I won the Heisman. I'm forever uh, linked to that uh, for the rest of my life. I want to get your thoughts on the state of college football right now, specifically this last year. Um, we're in a pandemic. There were a lot of people that thought maybe we shouldn't be playing football. There were a lot of teams that got COVID and you know, some of the players were okay. And, and some had complications of, of having COVID, but I thought, and a lot of other people have thought if there was ever a year where the college athlete was turned into an essential worker in order to keep the money from the TV yeah. contracts and, you know, the millions of dollars that are related to college sports. This was that year. What did you think about playing this season? And I'm sure even dating back to when you played, there's been talk of college athletes being paid and getting what you're worth while the sport is making lots and lots of money. What are your thoughts on all of that? Um, well, for one, uh, you have to commend each and every athlete. Um, staff, coaches, um, everyone involved in putting on a season this year for college sports. Um, it was very difficult trying. Uh, you had to be uh, relatively uh, flexible, nimble, agile with your schedule, understanding, because COVID was the biggest opponent for everyone. Um, it wasn't Alabama. So that being said, um, you know, I think we're moving toward a time when athletes are going to have to be compensated because let's face it, when college football first began, it wasn't intended on becoming a business. It was recreation. 
But as time moved on, the pop- popularity grew around the sport. It became bigger, garnered uh, bigger stages, created uh, huge personalities. There was a lot of interest nationwide, coast to coast, um, about college football. And it became a business. Corporations got involved. So it kind of grew. But what didn't grow along with that was the, um, the athlete, the appeal for the athlete and the, the care for the athlete, you know, uh, was looked upon that, hey, you know, your education is the compensation for you to, um, uh, to play football or basketball, whatever it is. But along those lines, it became a billion dollar business over time. And again, the athlete was still ignored and not included in that. The athletes drive revenue. We know that in college sports, there's a four-year window, and then you're your turnover, you, you're, you're throughput, and you're out, and this another level. But I think there's enough room. Um, there's uh, certainly some smart people out there that can figure out a way where athletes can be compensated. It may not be in terms of a paycheck as an employee, but they have to be allowed to uh, make money on their likeness or be able to sell things or with their name on it. And they've been doing it um, when I was playing, before I was playing, certainly after. So why not bring it to the forefront? Realize it is what it is, build a business model around it that appeases everyone and um, and go, with, go in that regard. So, you know, we're at that place now where athletes are no longer in the dark about how much these universities are making on their backs. Um, and I think it's apparent that, hey, you know, they, they need to be allowed to do something. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that the NCAA hasn't, they have an opportunity to say, how can we make this work instead of saying, hey, you know, we're still going to live by the rules from 1950, you know, that education is the compensation and they should be grateful and thankful and they're making millions and excuse me, billions of dollars on these athletes back with TV contracts, added games, um, the playoffs. And if the playoffs expand to, to more teams, guess what? That means more money. So there, there, there has to be a way you compensate these kids because the coaches are taking advantage of it with million dollar contracts. They're getting paid eight, nine, $10 million a year to coach these kids, you know, barely have enough money uh, to, to pay their rent on time. Um, so, you know, something needs to be done. I completely agree with you. As far as the college football playoff goes, are you happy with how it is now? Do you think it needs to expand? If I put you in charge of that, how does that need to look? Um, I, I think I think we figured out this during COVID, which is, can, can be a blessing, is that um, – College football can, can be flexible. I don't think you have to schedule out um, years and years in advance to uh, schedule these games out to, to get logistics down. I think now, you know, when we, we saw what BYU was able to do with Coastal Carolina, uh, able to do in 72 hours and put on a wonderful performance, um, it's possible that we can expand to an eight game or some people think a 16, I think eight's the number uh, that, that uh, eight game, 18 playoff. Um, now it's just a matter of, you know, putting numbers around it, the business model around it that makes sense for everybody. Um, but I, I certainly believe, you know, you can be very creative now with 
Power Five conferences uh, and the other five conferences in terms of how that looks from year to year. You can have, you can mimic what NCAA has done with the ACC versus Big Ten, you know, one year or the ACC versus Pac-12. And your non-conference games can look like that with one game um, from one of the smaller uh, schools. So there's enough there um, for people to, for the powers that be to be uh, innovative uh, before thinking and creative um, to put the best product out there that can not only serve our student athletes, but, but certainly college football lovers and uh, everyone involved. You played running back. Uh, I watched Derrick Henry now play running back for Tennessee. Uh, what a big dude that guy is. How has the running back position changed since when you played? Oh, uh, well, they don't emphasize one guy anymore like they used to. I think Derek is probably the only back in the NFL that is the, the bell horse running back that they're relying on um, 60% of the time. Now you're seeing more, well, it's always been, but the last few years, a running back by committee, a specialty guy that comes in. Um, you know, you see uh, a lot of teams doing that. Uh, that's how the position has changed. Now the run game is still, is still, you still, you still need to have a running game to win, I believe. But uh, we're not seeing guys, one guy get all the carries and have a, be a volume runner. He's got to be special to do that. You got to be durable. You have to, uh, you have the right, uh, the right situation. And you got to think about, you know, Derek is, is Derek, but he also had a, a almost a 4,000 yard passer and two 1,000 yard receivers, not one, but two, which means that you're stretching the field and you have space to run. So he's been blessed with a great supporting cast. So, but, but certainly the running game, it's not running back centric now. It's more uh, relegated toward the, the passing attack. Did I see on Twitter or social media somewhere at Malcolm Jenkins's virtual fundraiser that you challenged Ryan Clark to try and tackle Derrick Henry for charity? Is that happening? Yes. Well, I don't think it is. Ryan is not. Uh, <laughs> he, Ryan was talking tough behind the desk. <laughs> a cloth that, you know, he going to get after you. He, he, he threw his body in there on numerous occasions. Uh, you know, without regard for his own or anybody's life. So he's, he's, he's a headhunter for sure. But I just found it interesting that he said, you know, if I was out there, uh, this is what I would do to Derek Henry. I said, well, hell, let's make that happen. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that would be good. He was talking on one of the ESPN shows. So I called him out on it. You know, I'm, I'm like the, trying to stir up a little trouble. <laughs> That's good. We always need someone to stir the pot a little bit. All right. Uh, in 2019, the Titans retired your jersey. Mm-hmm. They retired Steve McNair at the same time, I think. Uh, the late Steve McNair, you guys were teammates. What was it like to have your jersey retired by the Titans? That was unexpected. Um, I, typically, by their rules, no one you don't get your jersey retired unless you go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Hmm. I guess um, uh, Amy Adams shrunk the, the – the owner for the Titans uh, felt the need to bring closure to that, that era and pay homage to it. Uh, our father, Bud Adams, um, drafted us. And we were the pioneers to bring 
NFL football to Middle Tennessee, the Middle Tennessee area, and be successful in our first few years. Um, and she wanted to uh, uh, show us uh, some love in that regard, and that that felt amazing to to have my jersey that number never being worn by anyone. It's never been worn by no one but me in that uniform and that organization. I mean, and Steve as well. So um, it's uh, it feels good to to be recognized in, in such a way. I love that team with the two of you. Uh, the late Steve McNair, what was it like playing with him? And for maybe some of the younger fans who didn't get to see him play, what type of a player was he? Oh, wow. Um, well, Steve was in college. I was a big fan of Steve. He's a year ahead of me. Uh, he was up for the Heisman. He was throwing for a billion yards at film, And he's, it looks like he's in the backyard playing with little kids, you know, a plays lasting, you know, a minute and a half, you know, with Steve back there. Right. Moving defenders. He could run if he wants to. He can take his time. He can check the time on his watch, you know, and then throw the football, throw it 60 yards downfield. It was amazing to watch this guy. So to play with him was an honor. And and Steve, um, you know, with all the Arabic Nair stuff, you know, he it was a process for him to reach that level um, uh, during his career because – when I got there, you know, he was still trying to come under center because everything for him was in the shotgun and he was getting the ball out fast and going to the athletes. Well, now you're in a run controlled offense and he has to hand the ball off and do off a play action. So he had to alter his game. So he came up to speed with the pro game and became uh, Eric McNair. So he had to endure a lot of, um, a lot of hardship, adversity, doubt, uh, what people were saying about him, he was a bust. He wasn't a great quarterback. He can't throw to all the stuff. And and that played on him. And he, and he played uh, with his heart on his sleeve. So, um, you know, Steve was um, was an awesome, awesome man. And um, uh, we miss him every day. Yeah, like you said, uh, you know, just he, he kind of, to me, was like a little bit like Patrick Mahomes before Patrick Mahomes. Like just – there, there was so much going on and he just, everything was in slow motion for him. And he just had a cannon for an arm. And, you know, I think he was bigger than Mahomes, but uh, he was kind of like Mahomes before Mahomes. Yeah. I mean, he, he can elude defenders. He could throw it any type of way. In fact, Steve, I think was uh, a pretty damn good baseball player too. So, you know, he, he developed into God, uh, one hell of a quarterback, you know, one that won an MVP and uh, three pro bowls. Um, and, and the numbers don't don't really really reflect his his greatness and what he meant to uh, our team and our city and and um, uh, and our community. So he he's he's vastly underrated, and I think he should be in the NFL Hall of Fame at some point in time. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back after this. There's no question that live sports and entertainment is changing as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Boingo Wireless is helping its partners navigate change to recover stronger than ever. Boingo works with teams across the NFL, NBA, MLS, NCAA, and more to redefine the connected fan experience with 5G-ready cellular and Wi-Fi 6 networks that power new touchless technologies. Now more than ever, Staying connected is what matters most, and Boingo makes it all possible. 
If you need a trusted partner for your network and digital transformation needs, look no further than Boingo. Learn more by visiting boingo.com or emailing sbradio at boingo.com. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. All right, I want to discuss your, your post-football career. When I had you on Sports Business Radio before, I don't know if you remember that, but you told me about the three E's, and mm. you said the three E's helped you with your transition to post-career. Share with us what the three E's are. Yeah, the three E's are entrepreneurship, entertainment, and education. Um, in my education, I went back, got my master's in, biz- my bit in business uh, since then. Uh, I've been teaching, well, I was teaching at the Ohio State University, the Fisher School of Business, the business of professional sports, um, delving into our life in totality, the people you come across, the contracts, the bad deal, business deals, the um, uh, things that you're going to experience off the field, um, dealing with family members, girlfriends, uh, divorce, child support, <laughs> all the things that can drive an athlete to go broke uh, financially and and spiritually speaking. Um, Under the entrepreneurship umbrella, it's been um, my businesses, my core business is my wealth management business. And it goes back to an experience I had as an athlete where my first uh, financial advisor almost walked away with my entire signing bonus. So I wanted to jump into the business um, to, to enlighten young men, but also to set up the proper infrastructure that they should have when it comes to wealth management um, and entertainment. And, and this lends to my career. They talked about the Heisman and how it's opened up doors. Well, it doesn't open up to a, a regular life or a nine to five. It, it all opens up to a slew of things. I've done commercials. I've been on stage. I've, I've been behind the camera, in front of the camera, and I've enjoyed telling stories. And in, in, in life, and in, in no matter what posi- uh, profession that you're in or what you call yourself, you're always telling a story, always telling a story. If you're a doctor, lawyer, um, actor, uh, businessman, salesman, you're selling something. So it, it's really helped me in that regard. And I, I've enjoyed telling stories in matter what medium. So um, that's in a nutshell you know, from a 60,000 foot perspective, that's, that's what the three E's are. Well, two things I want to follow up on. One, that class that you're teaching at Ohio State, I think should be a required class in every athletic department in America, right? right. Like those are life skills, especially for athletes that they're not usually taught until they go into a locker room at the pro level. And I think that's too late. Uh, the other is, you know, you've been Billy Flynn in the Broadway play Chicago that's got to be a different kind of, of nervousness compared to playing on the football field. You got to memorize lines. You got to perform. I mean, it is live theater right now. What's that like? It was, it's the same, the same nerves you experience in a athletic setting of the same nerves you experience on the, the underneath the lights of a stage. It's the exact same, uh, but it's channeled differently and it's approached differently. Um, on the football field, I can be very aggressive, but on stage, it may require you to be quiet, maybe require you to be still and, and, but yet powerful, uh, in your speech and in your demeanor. And you have to be conscious of that. Um, 
you know, you don't necessarily, you don't memorize the words, you live, you breathe the words, you become mm. the words. So when you're, when you're delivering a monologue, you're not just delivering a speech or a uh, motivational speech, you are telling the story of this character, however it comes out. Snot may be coming out of your nose, spit flying everywhere, tears or whatever it is. It's a very cathartic profession and it's uh, a very spiritual one if you open your body to allow that to flow through. And that's the one thing that I've learned is always to tell the truth in imaginary circumstances. That's the essence of, of being an actor. I give you so much credit. I, I think I would be far more nervous about being on Broadway than playing in a sporting event. And to go from, from what you were doing to that, I give you all the props in the world. Hey, listen, I, I was like literally pissing down my leg. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in, in New York city, I'm the ambassador theater. That, that was, cause it's a grand opening. You know, you have, your, that's one of the greatest openings I think in all of, and all the plays is Billy Flint, you know, it's the buildup and the dancers and the, 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 the light, the bright light that comes in center stage, you come down the steps and then, you know, you gotta, you gotta drop those notes. <laughs> you know, it's, that is, oh my God, you talk about nervous. My, my opening night, I'm, I'm backstage pacing like a panther and I'm thinking, Oh shit! What did I get myself into? I'm sorry about curse, but I was like, "Oh my god, what did I get myself into here? Why am I up here? Like, I'm gonna go out here. What if I fall down the steps? <laughs> you know, Billy, it's supposed to be cool, but I've enjoyed it. I, I've enjoyed that process, and, and hopefully, when COVID opens back up and Broadway opens back up, I can do it again. So, one of my favorite shows. I told you this before on HBO, Ballers with The Rock. You were on that show as well. And like we discussed before, those weren't just cameos where you're passing by in the office and you're waving hi to someone. You had some pretty intense scenes with The Rock. What's that like? At least it's not live. You get to do a few takes probably, but you're across from The Rock and some pretty seasoned actors. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was uh, it was intense. I, I recall, you know, going through that, that time, you know, because you have it's different from stage. You don't have a chance to build it up story. You gotta you gotta walk in front of the lights and, and go like right now and, and deliver um, whatever they're asking you to do. And in the beginning, I'm trying to you know get the lines down in my head, but also try to marry that with the emotion. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, that's that's the problem. <laughs> you know, like, like all right, check yourself now, check yourself. Get in there, you know, come on, let's go. Like, you, this business, you know. So I had to um, to get over that hump. Like I'm really doing this with Dwayne Johnson right now. I'm thinking, what is he thinking right now? Is he thinking I'm terrible? You know, all that stuff. Like you have to eliminate the distractions, and you just gotta go. So it was a very emotional scene, and I was just saying whatever came to my mind, curse words, and I just kind of just used some things that um, I used in the past, like that I experienced in the past um, in, that, in that situation. And I would yell out for line if I didn't know it. And I would just say it and they, they spliced it and cut it together. And, you know, 
So it was, it was a lot of fun doing it. All right. We're a couple minutes away from questions coming in from our attendees and some people who are listening to us record this interview right now for Sports Business Radio presented by Thusio. Uh, I've got to ask you about the Super Bowl. We've got Tom Brady against Patrick Mahomes, Chiefs, and the Buccaneers. It's going to be different. Only 22,000 fans are going to be allowed to be there. Not a lot of the pomp and circumstance that we usually have during Super Bowl week, but it is a two-week layoff in between when they just played and, and when they're going to play the Super Bowl. You've played in big games. What's it like preparing for the Super Bowl? Oh, well, we didn't have two weeks. We had one, one week to get ready. Uh, we didn't have a chance to enjoy being AFC champions. Uh, we had to uh, literally enjoy that night, enjoy the, the, the mini parade that we got. We got to the city, and the next day, we were going to prepare for uh, the Rams. Um, well, now in the two weeks, you can sit back, lay in it, enjoy it, and uh, kind of have a chance to exhale and, and realize you've done something special. Now, for Tom Brady, this is like, you know, waking up and brushing his teeth. You know, he's in a championship every year, it seems like. And so he, he understands what it goes into it, the focus, so forth, uh, to put into it. But it's a lot of fun. Everybody's watching. Um, it's a dream fulfilled for many. I only played in one. Some guys played in zero. So enjoy it. Enjoy your teammates because each, both teams will not be the same next year due, you know, to business reasons, salary cap and all of that. So I would say enjoy the moment. Super Bowl fits. Fashion has become such a big part of sports. Uh, I think you work with, is it Joanna Alba? Do, do you still work with her? So, you, I mean, she's a designer to the stars like you. And, and what's your fashion style? And, and how much thought do you put into what I'm going to wear to an event like the Super Bowl or, or some of the parties? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm a classic. I have a classic yet... Um, with a hint of, uh, of contemporary style, like kind of what's out now. You know, I like to, these things change, you know, styles change, how they how clothes are fit, fitting you, uh, materials, colors. I know I, have, I love blacks. I love certain colors, like certain, certain pops of color here and there. But, um, uh, you know, I put a lot of thought into it, and I, I usually, you know, coordinate with Joanna. I look at a lot of what the young people are wearing. But I'm not going to dress like a 13-year-old, but I'm going to at least have the style and the swagger of a 13-year-old, you know, to some degree. <laughs> uh, but I'm always, I'm always looking uh, for inspiration when it comes to uh, fashion. All right, we're going to go to some questions from our audience. Uh, Pat Ryan, his question is, what was the biggest thing that you learned coming into the league that you weren't prepared for? The biggest thing that I learned coming into the league that I wasn't prepared for was the lifestyle, um, having time and money that I never had in my life, and really not knowing what to do with it uh, in terms of education. You know, what I, I thought a million dollars was actually a million dollars, but it's not after taxes. It's significantly less, and after agency, agent fees and so forth. So I had to learn how to manage my money differently in my time, differently, and really changed the way I looked at wealth. Um, so that was an eye-opening experience. 
Pat has a follow-up question. What's the best menu item at Eddie George's Grill in Columbus? <laughs> oh, we'll give you a quick plug there. Hey, I'll, I'll tell you, it's it's for me, it's the, the classic cheeseburger with bacon, bro. You cannot go wrong. Oh, that sounds so good. It's a 27-pound, 27-pound burger. It's for 27, right? So 27-pound burger, it's absolutely delicious. Wow, that's a big burger. Oh, it is. It is. Uh, Andrew has a question. 27-ounce burger. I'm sorry. I was, I was like, 27 pounds? That's like a few people have to be sharing that. Listen, I, I've been playing golf today, so I'm thinking about how I missed my line. So excuse me, not 27 pounds, 27 ounces. <laughs> All right. That, that definitely makes more sense. The crazy um, burger will kill you on the spot. Exactly. Well, you would need a few people to eat that. Yeah. Andrew uh, says many pro athletes struggle when their careers end. How did you deal with that transition? Um, in short, um, I dealt with it. It was very difficult. Uh, I sought out counseling. Uh, I still, I still work with a counselor, um, and that's helped me find out that, hey, you have to divorce from being just the athlete. You have to find out who you are mm-hmm. and in that regard. I think a lot of people go through that, you know, that what ne- what's next phase if they've been in the profession for a very long time. And uh, I've been able to do that, again, through finding what my, my purpose in life is, um, being a bridge builder, pouring into others. And if I do that, you know, I'll be amazed at how, the next step for you opens up in terms of what your life purpose is. So that that's, that's, that's what I would say, you know, it's helped me was seeking out help, realizing I needed the help and be willing to accept the help. I love that. And, and I think athletes are getting more and more comfortable with talking about mental health and going to therapy and Hey, you know what, we don't know it all. And sometimes we need some help from others. And here's what that looks like. And I think it, it empowers others to do the same. Yes. Yes, it does. Walter Farnham says, what is Eddie's most daunting task within professional sports? What is my most daunting task? In professional yeah, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but yeah. maybe, uh, you know, is there is there a, is there something in sports that you feel that just really needs to be changed? Uh, specifically with, with, um, with football. Um, I, I mean, there's all, you can always improve on something, you know, you can always think that, Hey, guys need better contracts. They need guarantees. Uh, but I, I think you, you have to understand the business. Number one, you've got to understand what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. Um, not, you can't rely on an agent. You can't rely on a, a liaison or your business manager. You've got to be a student of yourself. You've got to study it, period. And not, that's just not the playbook, but the playbook of life. You know, look at, you know, 30 for 30 group. Look at uh, some of the guys that made those key mistakes um, by, by, you know, whatever that is, social media, beating up some woman or um, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, making, making sure you're making the right decision, knowing that you have a target on your back that people are always watching while you're playing and certainly after you're playing. 
Um, so you've got to understand that. And the more that you understand that, you understand how the business works, then you're able to adjust that and have um, a secondary plan um, once your playing days are done so you can continue to be successful. Just a couple more questions. Uh, Ryan wants to know, Tiki Barber wanted us to remind you that he has eight more rushing yards than you. With that said, who can flex the golden pipes on stage better, you or Tiki? <laughs> well, I've never heard Tiki sing, so I can't speak. <laughs> Listen, I know I can hold a couple notes here and there. I'm not going to break, you know, try to come up with a record. I know where my lane is, um, but – Hey, you know, Tiki got, got pipes. I go for George Washington. In fact, Tiki would make a great Aaron Burr in Hamilton. And a perfect Hamilton. <laughs> perfect. If you if you ever seen Hamilton, Aaron Burr, he would be perfect for that role. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Did you, when you uh, became an actor on Broadway, did you have to take vocal lessons? Is that something that came well, naturally well, to you? I know you're, aren't you married to... Someone who's a singer as well? Yeah. My wife is a singer on uh, SWV. But um, I want to be clear that I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, let me go and do Broadway. I had to work my way up to that. Mm-hmm. So I was in Nashville taking acting lessons uh, 10 years prior to me even jumping on the Broadway stage. So in a part of that process was singing lessons. And I took singing lessons to help with my speaking voice. And my acting coach always said, you can, you have a voice, you can sing, you can play the role of Billy Flynn one day. And I'm like, woman, look, let's just get through this lesson. I'm not singing nowhere. And lo and behold, um, the, the opportunity came, it presented itself. I said, what the hell, why not? It'll make a great story if I get it, if I don't. So I went forward and got it and um, I built confidence in my singing voice. And that's not what I do. My wife, you know, rolls her eyes like, how the hell did you get on Broadway? And I'm the singer, I'm the performer. <laughs> We got it, you know, so, uh, but she's been very helpful in my, my development in that area. Uh, that's amazing. Good to, good to have in-house uh, assistance. Yeah. I wanted to take the opportunity to ask you about social justice initiatives in the NFL and just in the world in general. We've really seen more of that in the last year after the death of George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor. Um, but is the NFL doing enough? Are we doing enough as a society? You know, I, I think it's not for me to, to, deter, to, to determine that. It's for everyone. This is not just a black issue. This is a human issue. It's an equality issue across the board of different races. It just so happens that it happens to African-Americans more often. That's where the spotlight is. And that's what, that was the whole purpose behind Black Lives Matter. Yes, all lives matter. But in this day and time, in this instance, what we're seeing is that the people that are protecting us are actually hurting us and we are afraid of them. And I think you saw that the difference is if you watched it in terms of how people were protesting and how they were treated in, in that regard versus what happened at the Capitol just a few weeks ago. Mm. And if you don't see that, then you really don't want to address the issue. So once you, as a person, and excluding you, to say, hey, this is not Eddie George's problem or his people's problem. This is our problem. How do we solve that? Then we're going down the right track and making real social change. And we can both say, here are our problems. This is the issue. What can we do about it? 
not you or who's doing enough, but what can we do about it? And I know that people are saying, well, football players should just stick to playing football and this and that. Well, guess what? These football players have lives. They have families that are still there. We still experience things as athletes that the normal portion is that some people, a lot of people look at me like, hey, he's not black. He's an athlete. Well, no, I have an African-American experience. I went to schools where I was the only black in the class, called the N-word on numerous kids, punching kids in the mouth. I've, I've experienced that. So I know what it feels like. So I say that it doesn't exist or to act like that, hey, we can throw some money at it. That's, that's BS. You know, you really have to come together and understand both sides and say, okay, we understand each other. Now, how do we get to a level of equality? How do we, and what does that look like? So, yeah, I mean, in the African-American community, there are definitely some other issues. There is, you know, black on black crime, like there is white on white crime, but we're talking about specifically the people that are to protect us, to protect and serve our needs as well. There's a difference in how that's, that's, that's being done. And that's clear that it with equality, doesn't that start in the home? I mean, I know that's how I feel. I'm a parent, and mm-hmm. I feel like it's my responsibility to teach my daughter about equality and, uh, you know, be around people of all colors and, and races and sizes and genders. And, and I, I feel, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a, a you know, political show here, but I do feel like if we're going to be better as a society, a lot of that starts in the home with us as parents teaching our kids about that. And a lot of, and a lot, of, you're right. A lot of that does start at home. And a lot, of, a lot of that, in a lot of homes, in, in terms of African Americans, the mill is not there. The fathers aren't there. Hmm. You know, so they're either dead, in jail, um, or or not around. So you know that 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 structure of of having a mother and a father. There, the teaching equality, where that is, 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 is important. So I, I think the father figure is definitely needed in terms of those homes for, for kids that don't have a father so they can be led down the right path so they can understand that. And let's, be, let's understand, too, you know, what you're teaching your child about equality in their conversation is quite different than what, my, what I'm teaching my kids. Because our experiences are completely different, right? And 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 it, there's not a right or wrong to that, but it is what it is. So if you're having that conversation and be and being honest about it, and saying, "Hey, there is a privilege here, and we understand that. How do we break the barriers to that and bring a light to it? Say, hey, here it is. How do we address it together, and and really come and find a happy medium with that." I want to end on uh, your experience at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, an excellent school. Um, again, you talked earlier. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? Number one in the country, by the way. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, so you talked earlier about being an entrepreneur. What are you focusing on right now as an entrepreneur? You talked about wealth management earlier. Um, and then, um, some of the things that you learned at the Kellogg School of Management that has stuck with you to this day. 
Um, there was a course um, called Entrepreneurial Finance taught by Stephen Rogers, who's now at Harvard. Um, I went to Kellogg specifically for that class because um, I learned about him through uh, the NFL when they had different um, uh, educational modules at Harvard, Wharton, Kellogg. And uh, I did the one to Harvard and I said, OK, it was just a taste of being in getting my master's in business. It was like a two week deal. Uh, and I said, I want to go and get my master's. That inspired me to go get it. And uh, what, shoot, what, what the, the, the learning wasn't necessarily in the classroom. I mean, you're learning about different case studies. You're learning about finance, um, accounting, uh, operations, marketing, um, how to negotiate in class. But the learning happened outside of the classroom. So we was a very diverse group of people from across the world, from Russia, India, China, that flew every other week into Chicago to get this education. And that's where the learning happened. And, and it just, just really for me, it was listening and, and, speak, and, and, and speaking afterwards, but really listening to what they're saying and, and, and embracing that and, and growing from that perspective, from their own experiences. Um, and from the uh, and what I'm doing now in wealth management is financial literacy. Uh, I, I think people don't understand how the basics of getting insurance, how insurance is much needed. And I'm tired of looking on uh, social media at GoFundMe pages to bury their loved ones. And mm -hmm. you know, it, it really it really bothers me with that. So, and that's something that I didn't really know growing up myself. So. Understanding like, hey, insurance is, is you have to have it, whether you, you rent it in terms of term insurance or you buy it in terms of whole insurance or you finance in terms of premium financing and, and how you can build generational wealth through those, those platforms, among others. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Exciting stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Sports Business Radio. Presented by Thusio. I don't know if we can bring Tiki in here. Can we bring Tiki in for oh, one second and, and have him uh, join me and Eddie? See if we can uh, do that. There's Tiki. There he is. What's happening, guys? What's up, everyone? You're looking good, Baldy. Baldies, both of you. <laughs> yeah, we're all three. Well, listen, I'm going to sign a, uh, a three-day contract next year. <laughs> <laughs> Just if it takes you three days to get the, if it takes you three days to get the eight yards, something's wrong with you, Eddie. Hey, you know what? The way my knees feel right now, you say, it might take me fifteen weeks to get three to get eight yards. You don't get it though. I know it. I know it, brother. It's all. It's all respect. You know that. Of course, man. I love you, man, and uh, I, I pray all is well with you. All that you're doing in your life now, bro. Yeah, most certainly. Hey, when did you guys point. meet each other? When did you guys meet each other for the first time? <laughs> you know, it's interesting, Brian. It's, it's like a brotherhood. Like if you, we met many times, I forget the first time we actually met, probably 1999 or something like that. Um, but I mean, when you're in the NFL um, and you respect the, the, someone on the other team who may not even play against, you kind of feel like you know each other. So as soon as you meet, it's like you've known each other forever uh, because we all follow 
I mean, I followed Eddie in college. I mean, he's a Heisman Trophy winner. I was a running back. How could I not know who he was? And I'm sure it was it was this other way around as well. You just you you feel like you know these guys. Then you go to Pro Bowls together, yeah. and before you know it, it's like your your brothers, even if you have minimal interaction. That's the beauty of the NFL. That's what happens individually on teams, but it also happens at the in the larger community at large. Well, I tell you, when I first noticed T. I know about his game as a running back and so forth. We were in Hawaii uh, for the player rep meetings, and I'm at, I was at right. the bar. And all of a sudden, I look and I see this guy that was glazed down, like oil, <laughs> wearing a, a speedo. I'm like, who is Tyson back here? Like, oh, I'm a big fan. Then I realized, I said, oh my god, oh, that's Tiki. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. Show it off, man. Show it off. Confidence <laughs> to wear a speedo. Like I was like in awe of that. So kudos for this. <laughs> Oh my God! You know, That's you know who could story. get away with. By the way, you know who could really get away with doing that? Your former teammate Javon Kirsch is. Oh, have you seen him recently? Man, he looks. He has. He still has. He has like a nine, like a like a sixteen pack. I'm telling you, years old. I'm like he looks. He looks like he's a bodybuilder. No, and he, he looks incredible. He looks. He incredible. does. Well, you guys are in great shape, both of you. You look like you could play tomorrow, so maybe you should just go back and forth with the three-day contracts and, and see who can last the longest. Well, as Eddie just said, I refuse to take hits anymore. I just exactly. took me, it took me like three years to, to realize that I'm just not cut out for taking hits no more. Right. All right, so so if, if you're not going to play football, I think we need some sort of a sing-off here. That's safer. <laughs> That's safer, and we got to see who has the pipes. Well, well, so Eddie and Eddie, did you get high notes in Chicago? Oh, I've got high notes. There's, <laughs> there's one high note that I have to hit every night. So, yeah. I did. Yeah, I was I was the same way uh, yeah. because when I come out on stage, I don't know if people know the, the story of Kinky Boots, but I was the antagonist. I was actually the bad guy. I was the, I was the thesis of the show, but I was the bad guy. And then obviously I changed my mind at the end. And at the end, when I'm walking, you know, on stage and I'm at Milan for the shoe show, I have to say, you know, you know, it sets you free, basically. And that's the highest note of the show. It's and it's hard to get to. I mean, I used to sit in the back, like warming up for 10 minutes before I had to go out there. Like, just go into the range because it would kill your voice to go that high. I can't do it on spot. <laughs> hey, Eddie, Tiki, I appreciate both of you. Thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. Tiki, thanks for letting us use Ethusio platform so we could do this cool video interview with Eddie. I'll remind all of our listeners to go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can get our podcast there. You can find our YouTube channel there and watch this interview as well so you can see these two handsome men. I got a face for radio, so at least you can look at these two <laughs> handsome men. I want to thank Malka Sports for all of their help with this, Griggs Productions, and obviously Thuzio, and most of all, Eddie, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Hey, thank you. Hey, God bless you, Tiki. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thanks, you guys. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends from Boingo Wireless, And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. 
For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.